Kia ora. You are listening to a 2019 special event podcast from Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. Arundhati Roy catapulted to fame with her debut novel The God of Small Things, which won the 1997 Booker Prize. Since then, she has published more than 18 books, including Booker Long-listed second novel The Ministry of Utmost Happiness and major works of non-fiction, such as Field Notes on Democracy, Listening to Grasshoppers, Capitalism, A Ghost Story, The End of Imagination, and now My Seditious Heart, an upcoming single-volume collection of her political essay writing over 20 years. Arundhati Roy is in conversation with Paula Morris. Arundhati, welcome to Auckland. Thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I thought we'd begin tonight with a short reading from you, okay. if that's all right. Would you tell us what you'd like to read? So, uh, I, was, I was at the conference this morning, so I'm going to read something different. Actually, this is the third chapter of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. It's called The Nativity. And although it's the third chapter, it is with this image and in fact, this uh, event that actually happened to me, that the kernel of this book was born. You know, this is how the Ministry of Utmost Happiness sort of, it was the seed that grew into this tree. So it's just, a, I'll just read for five minutes. It was peacetime, or so they said. All morning, a hot wind had whipped through the city streets driving sheets of grit, soda bottle caps, and beady stubs before it, smacking them into car windscreens and sightless eyes. When the wind died, the sun, already high in the sky, burned through the haze, and once again the heat rose and shimmered on the streets like a belly dancer. People waited for the thunder shower that always followed a dust storm, <clears throat> but it never came. Fire raged through a swathe of huts huddled together on the river bank, gutting more than 2,000 in an instant. Still the Amaltas bloomed, a brilliant, defiant yellow. Each blazing summer, it reached up and whispered to the hot brown sky, fuck you. She appeared quite suddenly a little after midnight. No angel sang. No wise men brought gifts, but a million stars rose in the east to herald her arrival. One moment she wasn't there, and the next, there she was on the concrete pavement, in a crib of litter, silver cigarette foil, a few plastic bags, and empty packets of uncle chips. She lay in a pool of light under a column of swarming, neon-lit mosquitoes, naked. Her skin was blue-black, sleek as a baby seal's. She was wide awake, but perfectly quiet, unusual for someone so tiny. Perhaps in those first short months of her life, she had already learned that tears, her tears at least, were futile. A thin white horse tethered to the railing, a small dog with mange, a concrete-colored garden lizard, two palm-striped squirrels who should have been asleep, and from her hidden perch, a she-spider with a swollen egg sac 
watched over her. Other than that, she seemed to be utterly alone. Around her, the city sprawled for miles, thousand-year-old sorceress, dozing but not asleep, even at this hour. Gray flyovers snaked out of her Medusa skull, tangling and untangling under the yellow sodium haze. Sleeping bodies of homeless people lined their high, narrow pavements, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe, looping into the distance. Old secrets were folded into the furrows of her loose parchment skin. Each wrinkle was a street, each street a carnival, each arthritic joint a crumbling amphitheater where stories of love and madness, stupidity, delight, and unspeakable cruelty had been played out for centuries. But this was to be the dawn of her resurrection. Her new masters wanted her to hide her hobby, knobby varicose veins under imported fishnet stockings, cram her withered tits into saucy padded bras, and jam her aching feet into pointed high-heeled shoes. They wanted her to swing her stiff old hips and reroute the edges of her grimace upwards into a frozen, empty smile. It was the summer grandma became a whore. She was to become super capital of the world's favorite new superpower. India, India, the chant had gone up on TV shows, on music videos, in foreign newspapers and magazines, at business conferences and weapons fairs, at economic conclaves and environmental summits, at book festivals and beauty contests. India, India, India. Thank you. Thank you. Just hearing you read this now um, makes me want to ask, are you a great walker in the city? Do you explore a lot on foot? I, I do, but you know, Delhi's a difficult city to walk in, actually, because it's dangerous to walk there. There are no places to walk, but obviously uh, a lot of, you know, even the film that you see in the parts of Delhi that you see in it, uh, in fact, that opening road where you see all those rickshaws in the old city. I, I have a room right there where I live sometimes. And yes, when I was writing it, I, I did walk a lot. And there's a character in the book, Tilotama, who, who walks in a way to steady her mind and to hold on to her sanity. She walks like a crazy person through the city. You said to me that every time you see that film, you feel a bit homesick. Yes. It's ridiculous, but it's true. Because I just came from there two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, the film was really made by, uh, uh, you know, a, a group of friends. Uh, uh, you know, I live in a community of filmmakers and editors and camera people and so on. So we decided to make it so that, you know, just when I came to Auckland, I could give you a sense of the landscape. No, I'm kidding. I mean, we showed it a lot. <laughs> but uh, so this, you know, I mean, although since the time the film was made, which was 
two years ago now. You know, the, 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 the Hindu right, the far right, uh, you've seen the parades, and they are much more scary than that now. You know, people being lynched, people being flogged, like the people who were being flogged in the film are Dalits, who, are pub who were publicly flogged in a town called Una. So, you know, my longing to go back is not, is not what it sounds like. It's not that I long for all that horror, but there's a lot of beauty. There's no one thing there, you know, it's always a fistful of feelings that you're offered or that you live in. And um, the time is so dangerous right now, it's almost like you need to be there to know how to position yourself, uh, to know what to do, because right now one really doesn't know what to do, you know? So what do you mean by that, that the times are, are dangerous now? Well, a uh, couple of months ago, you know, the far right won the election in a, in a, in a huge way. Uh, in, in this book of essays, which is 20 years of writing, already 10 years ago, I, there was an essay called Democracy's Failing Light, where I spoke about how each institution of democracy has been compromised until the point where we were left only with elections as, as a sort of symbol of democracy. Everything else had fallen by the wayside, and elections don't mean democracy, elections alone. But now that institution too has fallen, you know. So for a whole lot of reasons, we have uh, uh, a situation where you have, you have a country which is, you know, which is 1,300 million people, uh, Muslims, uh, Christians, Sikhs, all kinds of castes, 780 languages, and all of it is being sought to be reduced to the idea of this theocratic, you know, the Hindu nation. And that, the, whoever, who's included in it and who's excluded from it, both come with unbelievable amounts of violence. Not just physical violence, cultural violence, educational violence, pedagogical violence, all kinds of violence. So uh, right now we are in a situation where all the opposition parties who, who have just sort of imploded more or less or are imploding as I speak and uh, as you know, fascists always need an enemy, you know, so they've uh, made the Muslim community, which is a huge population of millions of people, the enemy, and intellectuals, you know, so they are railing against this, and I'm sure you've seen the news where people are being lynched. A couple of weeks ago, a young man was tied to a lamppost in a street called Jharkhand, and beaten by a mob over hours while he was being filmed, and then he died four days later. People are being forced to chant Hindu slogans, you know? So it's, uh, it's a situation which, uh, first of all, you have to survive in before you know what to do next. Do you ever feel the desire to escape, to run away? You've escaped before. No, I, well, that escape was sort of built up a bit in the press. It wasn't really what it seemed. I was, uh, I was you know, in the last few uh, 
months of finishing the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, and there was this huge uh, attack on students, on campuses, young people were being put into jail, uh, mobs were, you know, invading courts, and uh, on, on the TV there were certain anchors who were just ranting, saying that, okay, so these are young students, but who's the mind behind this, and so on. So I, I felt momentarily panic, uh, not for myself, but for my book, you know. So I left, but I came back immediately because it wasn't working out for me, leaving, you know. So, um, you know, I, I'm like a tree there, so I, I don't know whether trees can escape, you know. We have like roots and tap roots and forest communities and so on, so it, it, it would make no sense for me to escape when everything I love is there, you know, people that I love. It's not that I, I'm not some, obviously, I mean, this book which is titled My Seditious Heart, Clearly, I'm not a nationalist or any form of chauvinist. Today, just that title is probably a criminal offense. But it's just, you know, what you're used to and what you know. I mean, tonight we're talking both about your fiction and your non-fiction. Um, and I was saying to Arundhati backstage that, you know, I interview lots of other writers at the Auckland Writers' Festival, and many of them are very reluctant to talk about politics or to see their work as political in any way. Um, and I know that you've been told that you should either stick to fiction or to politics, but not both. And I read a, a quote from your friend, the Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeano, and he said, there's a tradition that sees journalism as the dark side of literature with book writing at its zenith. I don't agree. I think that all written work constitutes literature, even graffiti. Do you agree with them? Well, you know, this is a very specious difference that is made. What does it mean to say, I'm not political, for a writer to say that? I mean, if you're living in a country, <clears throat> I mean, even if you're living in New Zealand, but let's say you're living in India, where you're seeing the rise of a kind of fascism, you're seeing an attack, you're, seeing, you're living in a caste system, which is the most ancient form of hierarchical society that human beings have ever come up with. What does it mean to say I'm not political? Does that mean you're blind? Or does that mean you're a yogi that has some kind of posture where your head is up your ass and, you know, like <laughs> looking around? I mean, come on, you know? So trying to not be political is a pretty serious kind of politics, you know, trying not to see all that. So uh, I don't buy it. You know, um, maybe what they mean is I don't want to be involved. That's fine. You, you, you can, if you're very elite, if you're very, very comfortable, you can afford not to be involved. Otherwise, it involves you, regardless of whether you want to be involved or not. If you're a Dalit, you can't say I don't want to be involved. You know, you flogged on the streets. So if you're a Muslim, you're lynched. Are you going to say, I don't want to be involved? What is that, you know? Uh, so I don't think there's any, any, any real, uh, you know, I think that's a specious disconnection between literature and politics. 
between journalism and politics. I mean, I, I, I do think that there is such a thing as a literary imagination, which is separate from the brief, let's say, that a journalist is given, where there is that attempt to be neutral, you know, to report. I don't think any of the essays in this book would count for journalism because they are definitely written with a particular point of view which is not pretending to be neutral, you know, which is at the same time taking on board the other side of the argument or looking at things, but certainly not pretending to be neutral if there's such a thing, you know. But so, so for me, uh, The God of Small Things, of course, it's a very, very political book. You know, people, again, who wished to look at it as a book about children, as a book about language, they didn't, they didn't want to take on board the book about sexuality, gender, caste, uh, a book about transgression. So, in fact, when The God of Small Things came out, uh, five lawyers, five male lawyers, uh, every five years or ten years, seven years, I think, the, the, the thing is, five male lawyers file a criminal case against me. So the, f the first one was for the god of small things, accusing me of uh, corrupting public morality and uh, obscenity. And uh, uh, I had to actually appear in court and so on. It was a criminal charge. And, uh, you know, just as the case came up, uh, I won the booker. So now there was a problem <laughs> because, you know, we want to claim this, we want to claim this woman as ours, but we don't want to deal with the politics and the transgression. The judge came out and said, every time this case comes before me, I get chest pains. So <laughs> it took 10 years of hearing for it to be dismissed. Then, you know, Seven years later, again, I was arraigned for, for an essay I wrote on the, uh, on the dams, the big dams that were being built. Again, five men. This time it was even more ridiculous. They claimed that I tried to kill them outside the gates of the Supreme Court. And when I, uh, and the Supreme Court actually summoned me to appear, and I wrote my own defense which didn't go down well, because essentially I said, like, don't you have anything better to do than this? <laughs> so they asked me, asked me to apologize, and they used to keep throwing this essay from one brother judge to the next. Uh, they would call me that woman. So I began to call myself the hooker that won the booker. <laughs> and then, and then uh, they, they you know, asked me to apologize, and I didn't, so I was sent to jail for it. But just for one days. day, right? Yeah. And now, again, there's a contempt of court uh, because um, I wrote an essay called Professor P.O.W. about a professor of literature who's 90% disabled in a wheelchair who's been flung into prison for being a Maoist, I mean, you know, and sentenced to life imprisonment. So I wrote... Uh, this piece called Professor P.O.W. And so I've been, you know, pulled up again in court, although that case is at the moment in cold storage, as they say, they, they can pull it out when they want. 
So will you have to appear in court again? I did have to appear. I did have to appear. But uh, now it's been sort of... Because it was the charge was so crazy, you know, that uh, there wasn't any way that they could really sentence me. But the right thing to do, I guess, would have been to give a progressive judgment, which they didn't want to do either. So it's just, you know, sort of sitting there. But yeah. So I can't believe you have to keep going to court all the time. Yeah, it's a thing now in India. You know, everyone's always <laughs> going to court. <laughs> and I'm glad you maintain a bad attitude towards it all as well. Yeah, one, one must. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. um, I just wanted to talk briefly about The Forward in My Seditious Heart. Fantastic title <clears throat> for a book, don't you think? Where you talk about the essays that are collected here. You said, I find myself thinking of the essays in this book as pieces of laundry, poor people's washing, strung out across the landscape between two monuments you discuss, interrupting the good news bulletins and spoiling the view. That's Arundhati Roy, <laughs> spoiling the view in India. Would you talk about those two particular monuments, sort of follies of contemporary India that you refer to? So the two monuments that I, I, I write about in this is the, you know, the, the foundation of my, I think, of my way of seeing the world politically came from uh, learning from the anti-dam movement, the anti-Narmada. There's a, there's a river called the Narmada that runs through central India, and they, the most beautiful river, you know, which they had this Narmada Valley development project, and they, had, they have built these enormous dams on the river. And this was the most spectacular nonviolent people's movement against these dams. Which, uh, which I was very much part of. And, and the essay in this book called The Greater Common Good is about that. And I learned how to look at the world from there, which is not, not just about human beings. You know, it's about a river, it's about fish, it's about environment, it's about democracy, it's about corruption, it's about so much. You know, it's about international finance, about aid, all of that understanding came there, you know, my political foundations in, the, in, 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 in that dam. And now that dam has been built and everything that the anti-dam movement said has come true. That river has died, the downstream doesn't exist, it's just like a drain, because we knew that there wasn't as much water in the river as they said there was. None of the promises have been uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are some benefits to cities which weren't supposed to get the water, to golf courses, to five-star hotel, all that. But basically, that dam sits like a like a beast over a kill, you know. And and to compound it, right there in the village, in the indigenous people's village, where the movement basically began from. This government has built uh, a statue which is twice as high as the Statue of Liberty uh, of Sardar Patel, you know, and it's also built by Chinese engineers because the work was so complicated that it couldn't be handled in India. So that huge statue, which now now is even higher than the dam, you know, which costs millions. 
uh, is one of the monuments. And it's called the Statue of the. It's Unity. called the Statue of Unity. Yes, the Statue of Unity, which is a, which is a, ironic title to give uh, a, a very very divisive government, you know. And the Statue of Unity was one of the monuments, and the other was this, the the most expensive public. I mean, sorry, private home ever built. Uh, it's a 27-story building that is owned by the biggest industrialist in India called Reliance. Uh, so, so, so people really believe that Reliance owns India, actually. And it's a 27-story building with helipads and you know, many floors of parking lots and hundreds of servants and so on. Is it like 600 servants or 600 something 600 servants. And they own everything, you know, ports, infrastructure, uh, high-speed connectivity, everything, you know. So I said that these essays are like the washing line between the Statue of Unity and Antilla. <laughs> yeah. It's in Mumbai, yes. In house. Mumbai, yeah. If you Google it, you can see pictures of it. It yeah. looks extraordinary. It's crazy. Mm. But obscene as well. Yeah. Um, I've had to put my glasses back on. <laughs> Something I hate, as you know. Um, I, I was thinking about you as someone who always rejects propaganda and seeks truth, even if it gets you into difficult places and even if it puts you in opposition to much of the Indian media. And the word wilderness is one you've used, um, and we can discuss it more in other contexts. But I wonder if you ever feel as though you're in the wilderness yourself speaking but not being heard or, or being closed down? Well, I mean, the one complaint that I don't have is that I'm not heard, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm heard loud and clear, which is why there is such a, you know, pushback, which is why there are the court cases and so on, So, which is why there are, you know, uh, people screaming about me from the TV studios, even though I never go on TV in India, you know, so... I, I, I mean, no, because... Not in a panel show? No, 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 because you can't, it's just, it's just like you might, you might come out with an illness, you know? It's so frightening, the, 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 the thing now. So, I mean, there are moments when I've been, you know, like visiting a friend or something, climbing up the steps and I can hear the TV on in all these various apartments and people screaming things like Koi bhi ho, Arundhati Roy bhi ho, unko chodenge, meaning doesn't matter who it is, even if it's Arundhati Roy, we're not going to let her off, you know. I'm not, like, I'm just bringing dinner for a friend, you know, <laughs> But no, that's not, that's not a problem I have about feeling like I'm in the wilderness in, in that sense. It is true that um, it is true that I recently said to somebody, you know, that this book, my seditious heart, is like a 20-year-long weather forecast, and now the weather is here, and we just have to live with it, right? So I was thinking about the elections that just happened, and the image that came to my mind was. You know, like the tsunami when the sea pulled back and it exposed all this beach and people ran towards it and not realizing that was just pulling up into this cliff of, 
of a tidal wave. So there's a sort of celebration, and that's what these elections feel like to me, the recent elections, you know. So it's true that uh, it's not that one has not been heard, but that this way of seeing the world has certainly uh, been battered, you know. And yet, what has happened, and it's not just about me, I'm not, I mean, you know, for, for often these essays are about, are written from the heart of a crowd. You know, they are written from the heart of resistance movements, and so it's not just my lonely voice, you know. Although it is my seditious heart, because when, when you come to issues like Kashmir, there are very few people in India, including progressives or anyone who will say anything. But uh, the, the danger is that you know, now, even though it is known what, what privatization of essential infrastructure does is known, what the privatization of education universities does is known, what big dams do is known, what nuclear energy and nuclear bombs do. And yet, there's, a, there's an impetus that seems to drive those in power towards this destruction, which is the problem, you know, that uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not, it's not unknown now it's happening even though it is known what the consequences of these things are. Can we just go back to Kashmir? You mentioned it's obviously a very important setting in your novel. So you say that people are unwilling or reluctant to talk about it, to discuss it. Why is that? Well, because, you know, I mean, first of all, uh, there's a, you know, there's a crazy outpouring of nationalism around that subject. There is a, I mean, valorization of the army, and it is an occupation. You know, the Kashmir Valley is occupied. It's the most densely militarized zone in the world. But it's also because of the history of the partition. I mean, I don't like to use this word partition of India and Pakistan because it sounds as if there was a hole and it was partitioned, but there was never a hole. You know, there were so many princely kingdoms. There was a subcontinent. And the, the assimilation was as violent as the partition of, uh, you know, of these kingdoms, of so many things. And Kashmir was a, a princely state, which was never resolved at that time. But now it plays right into the, uh, the Hindu-Muslim standoff, and it stands in for Muslim terrorism, evil Muslims, and so on. So it's a subject which, any, anyway, if you say anything, uh, you, you get physically attacked, you get legally attacked, you get politically attacked. And so also, you know, the propaganda machine in India is so vast that it's not that the subject of Kashmir is silenced. It's covered in noise, it's covered in untruth, it's covered in lies. So people don't even know what's going on there, you know? And um, I mean, the, one of the main characters in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is, is a Kashmiri who's called Musa. And at one point he tells another of the major characters who's, who's actually an intelligence officer, 
who has served time in Kashmir, and they meet after a long time, and he says, you know, one day Kashmir will destroy India, not in the way you think, but in, in the corrosion of its institutions, in the, in, the corro in the moral corrosion that comes from this, you know? And, and you can sort of see that happening, you know? Uh, you can see, like, for example, there was a big suicide attack in Kashmir just two months before the elections. All of us were waiting for something like that to happen. And in a way, that suicide bomber of Kashmir chose the Indian prime minister, you know, by creating that sort of an atmosphere in which you were going to go as far right as you could. So in a way, they, they hold the remote now, you know. Um, you described yourself as a mongrel in so many ways, caste, religion, ethnicity. And as you were saying before, India is an intensely stratified society. And I wondered how the sense of defying definitions and identities yourself informs your work, informs your fiction in particular. Well, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting in any society, you know, if, you, if you're from Auckland, from Auckland, if you look at India, you look at Indians and you see some kind of a homogenous people. But India is obviously not that. You know, as I said, there are 780 languages spoken there. It, you know, in some ways, uh, Auckland might be closer to Delhi than, I don't know, you know, some Srinagar, you know. So it's, it's uh, in that situation, I, um, I mean, my mother is, she comes from a very tiny community called Syrian Christian who only come from Kerala. And she married outside, she married my father who was, who, who was uh, well, they were Hindus who converted to a kind of Abrahamic version of Hinduism called Brahmos and then later became a Christian. But she divorced when I was, I don't know, two years old or something, and then we moved back to the village. That's the story of the God of Small Things, obviously. And you grew up in this very conventional, in some ways entitled society that always made it clear that you didn't belong, that you didn't, you were not going to get married to one of those people you didn't have, you know? So uh, I suppose. I just grew up in, in, I mean, not in some terrible form of victimhood, but just outside of it, outside of the grid. And it isn't, it isn't like the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is about people, all of whom have an incendiary border running through them. It's the border of gender, it's the, in the case of Anjum, one of the main characters who's born as a Shia, Muslim boy, and then she becomes a woman, and she lives in the graveyard eventually. In the case of uh, a, a character who's called Saddam Hussein, he gives himself that name, because he comes from Haryana, he's a Dalit, and he watches uh, you know, the lynching of his father, and he decides to convert to Islam, and he has this video of Saddam Hussein's execution in his mobile phone, and he says, I, I, I want to be a bastard like him, you know? Anyway, so he has the border of caste. Musa, who I was talking about earlier, has a border of national borders running through him. Tilotamatu, she's a, another of the major characters. And I wasn't aware of the fact that 
this was going on in my mind, you know, but I suppose, in a way, once you're drifting, you meet other drifters, you know? It, those are the people that I encounter, those are the people that I love. Anything that's too uh, centered and too comfortable, even if it's, you know, so, I mean, I, I'm saying even if they're too comfortable in their definition as oppressed or in their definition as this identity or that, you know, it seems to, like, I, I seem to be more um, drifting towards the destabilized, the, uh, the many identity, the ones who understand that, who can, who can shift their identities, who can, uh, like, say, Anjum. She, she's a, what, what obviously in Urdu is called a hijra, which is today's parlance called a trans person, but her more dangerous identity is that of a Shia Muslim, you know? So that's what the novel does. It, it looks, uh, I mean, it, eventually if you see these characters who are all off-grid, the light is then shone on the grid from that off-grid position. But how they came to be in my book or how I came to be in theirs, you know, I think it's just a question of uh, our DNAs being drifters, as drifters, you know. Is it true that you talk to your characters? I've, I've read this, that you have conversations with them. I was a bit worried about that, but... No, <laughs> they are, you shouldn't worry, you know, they are, they are, they are interesting people. <laughs> and they, yeah, it's true, uh, it's true because, you know, um, I, I couldn't have written this book if they hadn't just moved in with me, you know, over years and years. They, they lit, it's literally like a form of craziness because they, they would sort of drop in occasionally and then suddenly it seemed like they were living with me and I stay on my own, but when people come visiting, I know that these guys are just assessing them and thinking about them, looking at them, and when I go to see someone off at the door, that person doesn't know there's a whole crowd there saying bye, you know, see you. <laughs> so, and they're not only human beings, they're also animals, there are horses, there are dogs, there are... Have you brought them with you to Auckland? They are here. Can't you see them? <laughs> We're going to be having a good conversation tonight <laughs> after this event. Yeah. I said that I was speaking somewhere, you know, recently. So Anjum, uh, who's, who's a character who opened, the book opens with, she, she ends up living in a graveyard just outside Old Delhi, uh, you know, bereft and devastated initially, and then gradually recovers, and she builds a guest house in the graveyard. And every room encompasses a tomb. And um, Saddam and she run the Jannat guest house. Jannat is a paradise in Urdu. And uh, she's very arbitrary about who she will admit and who she won't. And the guest house then becomes also a funeral services, to offers funeral services to people who other people refuse to bury and so on. So someone asked me recently, you know, 
are you safe in India? I said, look, I live in Jannat guest house. And I, after all my complicated political analysis, have come to the conclusion there are only two kinds of people in the world. One whom Anjum will admit into the guest house or bury in her graveyard, and the other who she will not. And I'm in, so I'm okay. <laughs> you know? There's a, a quote early in the book. Um, uh, one of your characters is talking about the history of the hijrah, the transgender or intersex people. And she says, to be present in history is a universe away from being absent from it, from being written out of it altogether. And it seems this importance of memory and history is it's vital to your nonfiction as well as your fiction to find out what is the real past rather than the mythologized past. You know, that's, that's the thing when people, when people say, you know, that, uh, in fact, I had this, I, I don't know how familiar you are, the writer called John Berger. He was, uh, he's, he just recently died, and he was a very dear soul and a dear friend of mine, you know. And he, uh, you know, he asked me this, he says, you know, and then he wrote about it, and he said, you know, I keep wondering, despite everything that happens, why do you keep, why do you keep writing what you write and insisting on, on, on this, uh, it, what looks like the losing side of history, why do you keep doing it? And he said, then I realized that, that it's just to say that we will never be zero, you know? You may not, you may win, but we will tell our story. We will not let you forget the consequences of what you did to people. So, <laughs> so in a way, uh, to me, to the people in utmost happiness, to all the things that one writes about and sings about and fights about and laughs about, you know, what is happening in the world is a project of annihilation, you know. So I think that at least the story, I mean, the first step is to tell the story. You know, the first step is to say, we're not going to let you get away with not even telling the story, you know. So history, as we know, is is uh, is written uh, history of course as the russians say you know the past is unpredictable so <laughs> you know so history uh, there's a lot of fiction that goes on in history writing you know and so uh, what can you i mean as, as a writer i say that you know whether it's the fiction or whether it's the non-fiction you know, literature is something, it's a shelter that is built by writers and readers. It's a fragile shelter. It's a shelter that can be and is often destroyed. But it's indestructible because we rebuild it. We, re, we, we insist on that story being told, you know. And what that story, it is, what story it is that you choose to tell is then your politics. And it is a history that the establishment seeks to erase, or seeks to ignore, or seeks 
to just not acknowledge. I think one of the historians with whom you've had conflict is Gandhi's biographer, who, I mean, you have, shall we say it, heretical views on Gandhi. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, the, the conflict, of course, was not about Gandhi. The conflict happened earlier because of, uh, you know, there was a time when I was younger when a lot of upper caste men used to advise me about what I could write about, how I should write, what tone I should take, and, you know, there's a lot of that kind of advice. But the Gandhi story, uh, well, there's a big essay in, the, in my seditious heart. It's called The Doctor and the Saint. And it's about a debate between Gandhi and Dr. Ambedkar, who was a Dalit, then known as untouchable. And he was Gandhi's greatest intellectual, political, and moral opponent. Again, for the most part, especially outside of India, especially outside of the Dalit community, written out of history, whereas his people have kept his memory alive, you know. But he was an incredible intellectual. And The Doctor and the Saint was first written as an introduction to, uh, to uh, an iconic speech that he never gave and then printed, Dr. Ambedkar. It was called The Annihilation of Caste. And uh, Gandhi actually responded to that essay and they had a debate. But while I was researching that, I, who have been brought up in India, who studied the same books as everybody else, who was told the same lies as everybody else, uh, started looking through some of actually Gandhi's own writings. And everything that's in this essay is not an interpretation, but a quotation from Gandhi's own writing. So shocking to me were his views on caste, because of course the world knows him as somebody who, who campaigned against untouchability, but he campaigned against untouchability, which is different from campaigning against caste, because caste is about entitlement. Caste is about representation. Caste is about occupations. And Gandhi you know, has said that caste is the genius of Hindu civilization. So when I went back to um, South Africa, I thought, you know, what happened in South Africa? We were all taught, for example, that Gandhi was thrown off the train in Peter Maritzburg, and that was his moment of enlightenment. He was sitting in a whites-only coach because he was fighting segregation. This turns out to be utter falsehood. Gandhi's first fight in South Africa was to have a third entrance opened to the Durban post office because he believed that Indians and blacks shouldn't share the same entrance. When he went to prison in South Africa, he campaigned endlessly for separate prisons for Indians, separate food for Indians. He only referred to black people as Kafirs. Um, his whole idea of Satyagraha was developed not because he was campaigning against segregation, but because he was appealing to the British to allow 
upper caste Indian traders to trade in the Transvaal. So, you know, what emerged from that entire time was absolutely shocking to me, you know. In a way, Gandhi, I mean, you have to grant him that everything, his collected works are available, and everything he said and wrote is available for the world to read. But what are liberal historians, left-wing historians, progressive historians doing, you know? This was uh, a, a, a whole form of dishonesty, which uh, the world has, I mean, I, I know that most of the world knows what it knows about the Indian national movement from Richard Attenborough's film, in which uh, Ambedkar, who is Gandhi's greatest antagonist, is absent. And I wanted to just say, hey, can you just put on the front of this film, this is a work of fiction? <laughs> because that would be truthful, you know? But yes, there's, there, I mean, this is about Gandhi and race, Gandhi and caste. But you, you know, the essay looks at Gandhi with women. It looks at Gandhi with the, with the uh, mill workers' unions. Constantly, there was this refusal to allow people political representation, political entitlement, you know? There's a moment which I quote here uh, when he was in South Africa on Tolstoy Farm, where he talks about having young girls and boys, you know, uh, living on the farm with him, and then he hears that the terrible news, he says, I heard that one of the boys had made some lewd remark at one of the girls. And my heart sank, and I asked the girl to come to see me. And I asked her, what is it about you that makes boys behave like this? And then, you know what he did to her? He shaved off her hair. So, you know, I mean, there is something very, uh, you know, I mean, at this point in time, there are people who will say, especially people on the left, who will say, at this moment when India is, uh, you know, f facing fascism, Gandhi is our only hope. But actually, Modi loves Gandhi. You know, he's now in October going to do Gandhi marches throughout. So it's a, it's a complicated history, but I think we should just begin with some semblance of the truth. Just in the, the last few minutes we have, I just wanted to ask you about your trip to Moscow to meet Edward Snowden, you and the American actor John Cusack, and also the man responsible for leaking the Pentagon Papers. What a strange little group you were, going off True. to meet Edward Snowden. <laughs> True. Um, but I don't know what kind of group wouldn't be strange going off to meet Edward Snowden, but actually it was a great group. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg is almost 90 now, I think. He uh, is the person, as you say, who leaked the Pentagon Papers during the Vietnam War, so he was the Edward Snowden of the 70s, you know. And uh, yeah, this, this meeting took place in the Ritz, overlooking the Kremlin, you know, Ed, Edward Snowden. Uh, I, I didn't actually uh, think that he would know who I was, but uh, he came and hugged me and he whispered, 
I know why you've come. So I said, why? He says to radicalize me. So, <laughs> oh, me? Do I look like that kind of woman? No. <laughs> You're the hooker with the book. <laughs> but but it, was a, it was a fascinating encounter, you know, because you had Ed, who, who, who's so young, but he speaks in complete sentences when he's talking technology, when he's talking about Google, when he's talking about surveillance. And so much of what he has said is, is now sort of here for us to know that we are living in the crosshairs of our cell phones and computers all the time, you know, and Facebook. Um, he, he was saying when Facebook started, the CIA just cheered. He was like, yes, you know, we, people are just voluntarily giving up information. Um, but on the other hand, there was a there was a great innocence about the history of US imperialism, you know? I was like, how could you sign up with the Marines for the Iraq war, you know, after Iran and Vietnam and all of Latin America? And he was like, yeah, we just didn't know about all that, you know? So it was a wonderful conversation where he was educating me about things I had no idea about. And, I was talking to, with, to him about things which were, he was quite innocent of. Um, I know he had his picture taken with a flag and you had some issues about that, thinking about flags and patriotism. And I was told him that flags are like shrink wrap on your brain. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little book um, that's your account and John Cusack's account of that visit. It's called Things That Can and Cannot Be Said. And in that, you ask, what sort of love is this love that we have for countries? What sort of country is it that will ever live up to our dreams? Yeah, because, because the more uh, powerful a country is, clearly the darker its past, you know. And so... What is it? I, I mean, uh, right now, it's, um, it's almost become a criminal offense to say um, anything about nationalism in India, you know. But truly, I don't even, like I keep saying, what do you mean when you say India, you know? It's, as a country, its borders were marked out by the British. And uh, the more you try to s sort of uh, put everybody into a cake tin and bake them, the more everything starts to fall apart, you know? So I understand that you have administrative borders and stuff, but you know, like right now, no one talks about it, but there's something called the NRC, like the National Register of Citizens, especially started in, in Assam in the northeast of India, where millions of people are being struck off the rolls of citizens. Now, these are people who have been living in India for decades. Um, they're just going to be stateless people, like slave labor, or anybody can prey on them. And, 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 and increasingly, this government is saying that 
Hindus will be accommodated, but not Muslims, you know? So the whole idea of this Hindu nation is, is, is rising. So, uh, and of course, nationalism all over the world, but uh, it really is a toxic idea, a very, very toxic idea, you know, that, that uh, I don't know how the human race will survive it, especially now that in the name of nationalism, whole countries have been destroyed. I mean, since 9-11, how many countries have been destroyed in the name of fighting Islam, except that they are not the radical Islamic countries. Iraq was not, Syria was not, Libya was not, Saudi Arabia is, you know. So um, it's just sort of uh, a world filling with refugees. So you have you know, these, uh, these kind of gratuitous wars of capitalism that go and uh, kind of hollow out places and then borders closing. It, you can't really control these things eventually, you know. If America attacks Iraq, I mean Iran, I don't think, uh, I don't think they have any idea that it's not going to be like attacking any other country, you know, to, to do that. Please, everyone, join me in thanking our Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhio Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.